True Multifamily is an On Air Brands production and a proud member of the On Air Brands Network. This is True Multifamily, the show where we dive in on what really happens after closing a multifamily property. We're going to expose the role of asset manager. That's a person who has a responsibility of seeing the vision, executing the plan, and managing people, budgets, and timelines, all to deliver returns for our investors. These are the real struggles, the real victories, and the real stories of asset management. Welcome back to another episode of True Multifamily. I am here today, Mr. Gino Barbaro. Gino, thank you so much for coming on the show. Justin, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to it. This is a, a big get for me. I'm very excited to have you on. I've been a fan, listener, reader of the book. I mean, just so much great stuff. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks. So, Gino, uh, we're just gonna we're gonna jump right in. You know, I, I know people can can find out about you. You've got how many episodes of your podcast and and that. Give us a quick summary on on who Gino is. Um, and then obviously there's so much more people can go and dive in on all your content to find out more. Uh, real quick background, father of six kids, did not start out multifamily, had a restaurant in New York for over 20 years where thank God I'm not living there because 12 inches of snow, 22 <laughs> degrees, we can get into that. But left New York three years ago with the whole family. We were, like I said, six kids, we homeschool. And I met Jake back in 2009 at the restaurant. So the restaurant wasn't all bad, right? I met my potential partner. We started buying deals in 2013. We were the opposite of everyone else. We started buying deals with our own money. Our first thousand units we bought ourselves. We were able to refinance and reposition the, the proceeds, run $11 million into the next deal, into the next deal. We're not the Lamborghini types. I had clarity. I know what I wanted. I wanted to continue to scale the business because multifamily is a long-term business. Yes, it's the conveyor belt. Put a deal on, the next deal. The next deal, liquidity event, whatever that looks like. So we just continued to grow our, our portfolio that way. Then we started you know, adding different revenue streams on, whether it was the education. Then we decided to syndicate. Everyone else is doing it. They must <laughs> know something that I don't know. And it's a fantastic tool in the toolbox. It's one of the great ways to get into multifamily. And, you know, our goal is to buy a couple of deals a year, buy really good deals. We are vertically integrated. So we property manage, we buy, we sell, we're even getting our own debt. So I want everyone not to look where I am now. I started out just like everyone else did with a dream, with a vision, and with a goal of really just doing, I really started out small. I just wanted to just generate a little bit more revenue to pay for my kids' college and to pay, you know, to pay for my kids' expenses. And then I saw the possibilities. All you need to do is to start. It's never the wrong time to start. It's only the right time to start when you're ready. I started back in 13 when the economy was crappy. You know, I mean, job growth was negligent. Rents were 350 bucks for one bedroom. GDP was 1%. It was brutal. There was no money. There were deals, but there was no money. So right now it's the flip side. Now there's a lot of money. There's no deals. Just learn, learn the market cycle and take that next step. You know, people don't lack motivation. They lack clarity. Get clear on what you want. Once you have the clarity, you will find that motivation to take the next step. Wow. All right. Are you just hitting us off with some great, great intel, right? Right off the bat. I love it. Um, before we get into some asset management conversation, I am curious about the podcast. Um, when did you guys start, you know, Jake and Gina, when did you guys start that show, Wheelbarrow Profits, and and just sort of how did it start and, and what have you gotten out of it? 
I'm just curious. For about me, that. it was a blessing in disguise because I started it before I left the restaurant. I was grinding 60 hours a week at the restaurant and probably another 15 to 20 with Jake. I started the podcast because I wanted to learn. I honestly didn't even know what a podcast was when I first started. I'm like, let's start a radio show. You know, <laughs> I got an, I got an, I got an old Italian mom and I tell her podcast and I just say, mom, it's just a radio show, ma. Yeah. And I started out back in 2000, late 2014, early 2015. And for me, it wasn't just doing a podcast. It was being able to get on with, you know, operators like Justin being able to, you know, podcast a lot of my mentors. I mean, you know, Tom Ziegler, Zig Ziegler's son. I, I interviewed him last week. Kyle Wilson. We have, you know, I mean, Grant Cardone, T. Harv Ecker, Harry Dent, all these people that I would never be able to have a conversation with, but they're all willing to come on our show. And obviously it's value for value. I, I do a lot of stuff for them. I'll read their books. I will review their books. We have really stimulating conversations. What it does it prepares me. I have to level up because if I'm talking to a Justin, I really need to know what I'm talking about. So I spend hours on preparing for the show. It's a mastermind. It's a collaboration. Every single week, I'm learning something new. And ironically enough, I started one with my wife called the Multifamily Zone, which I love just as much because I get the banter back and forth with her. I get to grow closer with her. I get to make fun of my wife on the podcast. I mean, how can you do that? I mean, I, there's nothing There's nothing better than that, right? It's a safe space. You can do it, what you need it to. It really <laughs> is. But, you know, the podcast is more than just monetizing. We're not really doing it to monetize. We're doing, I, I was doing it because it was a place for me to mastermind and a place mm -hmm. for me to have my partner get on the call with me. And then afterwards, we're going to shut this recording off and me and you're going to speak for a few minutes. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you seeing? Hey, do you have this vendor? It really is an amazing place to network and to meet people and really to learn. I mean, if I do a show a week, that's an hour a week. If I prepare, let's say 30 minutes for that show, that's an hour and a half a week. That's 75 hours a year just from that that's a good seven or eight books that you've read just from doing podcasts if you look Absolutely at it from right. that perspective plus the, the way you you know you're finding deals or you're finding vendors on top of that and you're learning strategies on how to manage these properties how to buy these properties it's just if anybody's out there thinking that I don't have a story. I don't have a voice. When I first started, I, it, was, it was painful to watch and painful to listen to. But give yourself a break. When you start out, you've never done it before. That's the learning lessons. And you know, people who don't start think that they need to be all polished. Commit, figure it out. Because I'm going to tell you one thing. We are all winging it out there. Even after five years, I'm still learning how to do stuff. I'm still learning how to talk. But if you're genuine, you're authentic, and you're willing to serve, you'll be able to, you'll be, you'll be able to do fine in, in, with a podcast show. I love that, you know, for you, it comes from the point of learning first and, and having the guests on the show. And that's really why I wanted to start this show as well as just educational and, and just found a niche that not as many people are speaking about, you know, and, you know, Wheelbarrow Profits, that, that was, you know, when I first started thinking about multifamily, that was really one of the only shows out there talking about that kind of stuff, you guys digging in and um, all the core tenants and the, the, the guests you had on just so great. So this is, this is me publicly saying thank you for running that show because it definitely helped influence where I am today. Justin, do you know why? Because it's not sexy. It's right. Not, we're not going out buying deals. We're not underwriting deals. We're not raising capital. We're not at these meetups. What we're doing is we're really running a business. Correct. And at Jake and Gina, we are creating multifamily entrepreneurs. You are being an entrepreneur because every single deal you buy, you're not buying real estate. You're buying a, you know, an income stream, a stream of revenue. You're buying a business. And how awesome is that? A business that you can scale. I had one restaurant for 20 something years. I wanted to scale that. I couldn't for a lot of reasons, limiting beliefs, immigrant parents, the model changed. 
the profit margins weren't there. It's hard to scale that kind of business. Anybody can scale a multifamily business. Once you figure out a duplex, try four, mm. six, 10, you start scaling up. It's like, wow, I can do this. But you need to have the right mindset. You need to actually be there. It's called buy right, manage right, and finance, right? It's our three-step proprietary framework. The one in the middle is the manage, right? Where a lot of that's people right. don't want to talk about. And that's the wheel of the wheelbarrow. It's in constant motion. It doesn't mean you have to manage your properties day to day. You better find a third-party property management that will manage them for you. You need to have a cadence of accountability. You need to hold them accountable and you can do that. But we always want to point the finger to the property management company, say they're doing a bad job. Look within. Do you know how to operate those systems? And you know, do you know how to tell them what to do? That's really important. Yeah. So let's dig right in on that first topic, because that is something whenever I talk to people about my role on the team and what I'm doing, they say, oh, you're, you're a property manager. It's no, I'm not an asset management, property management, two very different things. Mm-hmm. T- tell us your experience with that and, and how you look at each of those roles. Well, for me, it was an epiphany, believe it or not. Like at our, at our manager right bootcamp last year in July, every year we have about six or seven internal bootcamps for the Jake and Gino community. And this is a manager right. We go on our properties. We do property tours. Our students go on because they want to learn how to manage right. And when the amazing thing, I'm, I'm sitting there, we, we started managing from, the, from day one. So I always blurred the lines between what a property management company did and what an asset management company did. We did both. When we started syndicating deals, it's like, whoa. They're two completely different things. And they're actually diametrically opposed, aren't they? The property manager wants to spend as much money as they can to get in that granite countertop. I'm looking at my uh, ceiling fan for 150 bucks. We had, we had a property manager who actually spent 150 bucks on 156 ceiling fans when she could have spent 60 bucks and gotten the same ROI for us. Right. So it's really, it's confrontational. It can be because property managers sometimes don't really look at the budget as much. They're trying to look at actually driving revenue sometimes and maybe not looking at expenses. Whereas I think the asset management company has a fiduciary responsibility to the investors and they're trying to keep the budgets down. So how do they work well together for us? It's about net draws. That's what we're looking at when we're managing our own properties. So the lines were blurred sometimes because even though we do property management and we have a separate company, those fees are really low. They're really there to keep control of the asset and to try to do it as, as efficiently as possible. The asset managers have the fiduciary responsibility to say, you know what, are we going to spend 7,000 on a turn or we can spend, can we spend 4,000 on a turn and maybe get, you know, $80, $80 rent bumps instead of a hundred dollar rent bumps. Is that worth it? They need to be on the same page. They need to be talking the same language and they need, to, I think to have the same vision. I think that starts even before you buy the deal. I think that starts with your blueprint, you know, your, your whole business plan really. And what are you trying to achieve? And if they're, they're butting heads, that's not a good thing. You need to get them on the same page. Does that make sense? Oh, hundred percent. We just recently, two months ago, closed on, on our largest asset yet. And we had a property management company that we use on other assets, third-party manager, and they could not get behind our business plan and the staffing was not right. And they just, it was not a fit for them mm-hmm. as a management company and that's mm-hmm. okay. And we went and we, we brought in another management company who are doing an excellent job, but it's alignment. It's alignment of their goals and our goals. Mm-hmm. But I love that you said it starts with a business plan. And that's something that I talk about a lot on the show is literally sitting down and talking with the property manager about and the staff, the day, staff that's there uh, every day, day-to-day basis. These are our goals. This is how we're going to get there. This is where we are going to invest. This is where I'm going to look for you to save us some money. And Justin, just being there with the team. Do you mind if I mention uh, one of the things I think is really crucial? I mean, this is, I think, high level, but I think it's important. Um, we call it the three pillars of real estate. It's another one of our proprietary things that one of our coaches put together. All the information's out there, but we try to bring it together and bundle it. Now, the three pillars is number one, the market cycle. Number two is the debt. 
And number three is the exit strategy. So it, it really aligns into what you're talking about. In this part of the market cycle, what we're seeing is you're trying to buy assets that are a little bit newer, right? Because if you're buying older assets in this part of the market cycle where prices are inflated and you're trying to buy older assets, there's nothing wrong with it. But at this part, you may be overpaying. You may have that CapEx tsunami, we like to say. So know where you're buying in the market cycle and also know your exit strategy. If your property management company thinks you're going to hold it for the next 20 years, but your asset management company is going to blow out of this deal in three years, well, you're not going to you know, your, your budgets are going to be completely off and your visions are completely, be completely different. So you need to look at all three of those. We're not getting into a long conversation. Look at where you're buying in the market cycle right now. Look at what kind of debt. Are you going to have defeasance? Are you going to be able to put a supplemental loan? Are you have bridge debt? You have step down. That's really important. And then nail the exit strategy and make sure that both of those companies are in alignment so they can actually execute. Because like I said, you don't need a $150 ceiling fan if you're going to blow out of the deal in three years. You may want to put granite countertops if you're going to hold this asset for the next 10 to 15 years because they may be more expensive on the front end. But if you're turning these units every 18 months, you may have to go in there, resurface. In the long term, that granite may be a much better you know, value add because you're not going to have to change it for, let's say, the next 10 years. So Getting granular like that is really important, but if you don't know the three pillars of real estate and you're not executing on them and not knowing what your exit strategy is, you should know what your exit strategy is before you buy the deal. You should at least have a vision. And then if you don't know it or it doesn't work out, we bought a deal 18 months ago. Our exit strategy was to hold it to seven to 10 years. The way the market elevated, we missed, we missed shot on the, on the uh, market itself. We missed shot on the median income. The area wasn't as great. We sold. We're lucky we made a profit. So then I'm not saying your exit strategy has to be, you know, you know, put in stone, but at least be clear on what options you have. And if you can, you're able to pivot it. So I think that's really important. Like that cannot be overstated. Most beginning investors, myself included, in our first deal, I am buying hold forever. This is how I know what to do. No, it's not because you can get owner financing on a deal. You can syndicate a deal. You can JV. There's so many different ways of getting into it. Know what your exit strategy is. And I think that will really help the conversation between the asset management company and the property management company. Like I just said, clarity is important. If you're not clear, then they're going to get mixed messages and they're going to do what they want to do. And then when something goes wrong, it's like, well, it was his fault. It was her fault. No, it's <laughs> ultimately Justin and Gino's fault because we didn't yes. convey that message to him. Absolutely. Absolutely. It starts at the top with very clear expectations, clear mm-hmm. communication cannot be overstated hundred um, percent. Let's talk about you know, repositioning. You sort of touched on repositioning an asset, three, uh, three steps to reposition an asset. You wanted to talk about that. Let, let's hear about that. Oh, really? I mean, really simple for all the students out there and everyone listening. Our three step is pretty simple. I mean, you fill the vacants. That's the first thing you need to do. Any vacant unit, and you know, on these mom and pops that we buy, a lot of vacant units sometimes are being used as storage sheds. We're looking at this <laughs> really big deal. They have a fourplex that, you know, this we're using it as our office. They, they're using four units as an office. I mean, are you kidding me? You know, they have a they have they actually have a little office, but those four units fill those vacants, get those vacants taken care of, turn whatever you can, because once those vacants are done, you start you start looking at the leases and you start you start implementing rubs. That's the second one where if you're able to build back, whether it's garbage, whether it's pest, whatever you can build back to the resident, whatever the market allows, that's the, that's the next one. And then the third step is just, you know, raise remaining rents to market. 
as you have those, as you have, you know, the vacants coming up, you're going to start repositioning them and filling them to market. And it's amazing that in our, you know, in our first couple of deals, I remember this, we would fix those units. The people that were in the older units, some of them were like, I like that newer unit. I'm going to go into that newer unit. So you have the newer transfer. But what happens is this is when the tenants start repositioning themselves and start repositioning out of the unit. And you're able to actually, it's a good thing if you're doing a value add, because you want to get that new tenant base in there. Because if you're at, let's say $500 a month for one bedroom, and you're going to 650, you're going to lose a significant amount of that resident base. You just need to do it in a timely fashion. You need to have a repositioning. How many days? That's the thing. When you're talking to your property management company, the asset manager needs to know, we have a five-day plan. Day one, flooring. Day two, painting. Day three, cleaning. Day four, fixtures. Day five, move-in. That conversation needs to happen because we're selling time in multifamily. If we know we have two units coming up, how long is it going to take us? We need to get our CapEx crew out there. That's really vital to have the asset manager and the property manager on that same page because we're selling time. You lose two weeks of the month on a $600 apartment, that's 300 bucks that is never going to be gotten again. So we have to really be able be able to really time it and have that, you know, that, that framework set out in how many days, is it going to be a light repo? Is it going to be a heavy repo that all needs to be flushed out on the front end as well. That's great. And you know, if you're not setting that clear expectation up front, then how are you going to measure it? Uh, which leads me to our next topic, which is KPIs. What, what sort of data are you guys looking at on a regular basis? What tells you whether the property is healthy or not? So the first thing I want everyone to write this down. One of our Jake and Gino students told me this, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of engineers out there have heard it. If you can't measure it, then you can't manage it. Right. Write that down. Cause that's, and I wasn't a big KPI guy when we first started, but as you start growing your portfolio and you start adding additional units on, you know, you can manage one or two properties pretty efficiently by yourself. You need property management software, whether you're using Appfolio, RealPage, Buildium, whatever that may be, we're using Appfolio. One of the biggest mistakes we did is we started out with Quicken and QuickBooks. It was great for the first two deals. But then after that, we went to some product called Rempost, which was pretty terrible. But, you know, Jake doesn't want to call himself cheap, but he was being very frugal to say the least. We should have gone <laughs> right to Appfolio. And that was the biggest, that would be one of the biggest mistakes we did. We waited till 650 units to get on there. Now that we're on there, it's freaking amazing. We love the platform. We love what the, what the property, you know, we're looking at underwriting deals and we're looking at this mom and pop seller. He's got 200 units. He's using QuickBooks. It's taken yep. him three days to get his financials. I mean, dude, send. That's all you need to do. And it, just, <laughs> right. it doesn't make you look professional. And as an, as, as an asset management company, it is vital to have those numbers to your investors when they ask you a question. I think the KPIs we look for, we do what we call a weekly pulse. Every week, every week on Friday, we send out our pulse and that has that report has certain metrics on there. We like to look at delinquencies. We just started tracking delinquencies about two years ago. We had a smaller portfolio. And like I said, it was all our stuff. But once you start taking investors' money, you need to know tracking delinquencies weekly. Hopefully they're going down, but more importantly, if they're not, and you have a significant amount or 4,000 or 10,000 in week three, that's where you tell your property manager, can you please start sending out some text messages to residents to start paying the delinquencies? You start pushing your property managers to actually start collecting it. I think delinquencies are important. I think another key metric that we didn't do in the beginning, but I think is really important now, occupancy is great. Physical is great, but you know we have a 95% physical occupancy across our entire platform of about 1,400 units. Our economic occupancy is 91%, which is great, but we want to bump that up to 92. So measuring economic occupancy to me, I think is huge when you're underwriting deals and putting deals in offer. Because if you're, you know, there's certain markets, let's say Memphis, they can have a physical occupancy of 95%. But when you dive into the numbers, it can be in the 70s in some of these rougher areas. Well, that's going to throw off all your numbers and that's going to tell you what, what kind of resident base you have. So look at your, you know, try to measure your physical and economic occupancy. 
Another one we like to look at is guest cards. Somebody comes onto a property, how do they find us? Internet, they walk in. We want to see what kind of foot traffic, what kind of people are coming to the property so that if we have two vacants and we've had 20 people apply, how many have actually been turned? So you want to, you want to really measure the traffic that's coming to the site and what kind of conversions. So one property is getting a 40% conversion. One property is getting a 10% conversion. Is it the property itself? Is it the amenities or is it the property manager? You're not going to know until you dive into those numbers. We also look at vacant unrented. We look at, uh, we'll look at vacant that are rented. We'll look at lease terminations. You know, people who have left early, we'll look at the evictions going on. What you really want to do, everybody, from the KPI perspective, your key performance indicators, you want to be proactive. Like we had mentioned Chick-fil-A. I think Chick-fil-A is an amazing company. I'm not too particularly fond of their food. I'm not a fast food guy, right? But when I go there, it's the feel that they give me. They make every single person on that freaking line, which can look any other store, you'd be waiting online for 45 minutes. Yeah. You, go to, you yeah. go to Walmart with six people online, you wait 30 minutes. These people have 50 people online and you're in and out in eight minutes with hot food. It's just mind blowing. It's incredible. But what they do, they are proactive. And that's what you want your KPIs to tell you. I can't tell you what KPIs you should be using. We also will also track in our weekly pulse income. Uh, for, for like the last 12 months and we'll, we'll do 18, 19, 20, and then we'll look at expenses. That's just a snapshot to see where income is going, where expenses are going, and you can see it and track it throughout the year. But what you want your KPIs to do is to give you an idea of being proactive. Like I said, those delinquency reports are really important. Um, the economic, well, if your economic drops to 84%, why is that? Why aren't we collecting, right? So you want your KPIs to show you how to become more proactive and to catch things become, before they become a big problem. Oh man. So, so much great stuff. If everyone listening, please go back, rewind and listen to that again. I will do that as well uh, because there's so much great information in there. One thing that you mentioned that I wanted to get on just as a timely factor give is delinquency and, and delinquency for me is probably the thing I'm looking at thinking about when I wake up in the middle of the night and like the <laughs> first thing in the morning is our delinquent balance on all of our properties what have you guys seen through COVID? We're now 10 or so months into this pandemic. Um, how are you managing your delinquency? Are you seeing huge spikes? And what sort of creative ideas or, or things are you using so that you can keep that delinquency balance low? When we first started out, we had a call with a gentleman named Joey Coleman, and he wrote a book on never lose a customer in 30 days. Customer experience, right? We also had one with um, DeJulius, right? Uh, another customer experience dude. This is what the, the podcast has allowed us to do. Pick out all these great, great little nuggets, right? And even with Chris Voss, negotiation. Mm. You're basically in a negotiation with your, with your resident. How would you like it if the property management company is always beating down on you, right? You know, you're late, you're late, you're late. The way Chris Voss explain it to us is you really want to be empathetic. You don't, you don't want to take away their autonomy. I mean, a lot of people are having a rough time right now. You're trying to create that community feel, I think, in your in your apartments. And, you know, we really should lead with what can we do to, you know, help you along. We've actually given resources. You know, there's been a lot of county and city resources. You know, one of our properties in Louisville, it's been pretty hard hit. We've been able to actually, actually give those resources to the, to the residents. Even when, you know, the uh, stimulus money came out, a lot of residents didn't know where to go. We gave yep. them that information. That's really important. That's being proactive. In the beginning, we gave out toilet paper to every resident, you know, the Ram family, you know, this is a way to get you through, through a mm. crappy situation because, <laughs> hey, you know, it was just one of those touch points, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it really, we're 
trying to become the Chick-fil-A of apartments, right? And it's a process, but really what you want to do is create your customer experience and customer journey. Read that book from Joey Coleman. It's really amazing. It's eye-opening. From He talks about the eight steps from the assess phase all the way to the advocate phase. What I think everyone should do, and when I'm referencing Chick-fil-A back again, they really have empathy. They try to teach their employees to have empathy for the people they serve. And I'll give you a quick example. Your maintenance tech may be like, damn, I got to go change the hot water heater to this, this apartment. This sucks. But if you make that maintenance tech, make him seem as if he's doing an amazing job for somebody. If you don't fix that hot water heater for that single mom who's going for an appointment for her job and you don't fix that and she loses that opportunity, then what happens? You have to humanize a lot of these situations. And I think that's where property management, especially in the C-space, they, we, we don't do a really good job of that. I think the other thing with that, you know, don't call them tenants. We call them residents. I think the language you, you look at them, they're really, they really are paying your bills. They're really people out there who are occupying an apartment home. It's not just a unit. They're, they're creating memories there, right? And, and we, we sort, sort of forget about that. And it's funny, when I rented my house a couple of years ago, I was reminded, I've got big family, something went wrong. It was the hot water heater. I was out for a day, day and a half. I was getting annoyed at the, at the landlord. So I'm like, I got you know eight of us, we've got to take a shower. I mean, it's great. I can go yeah. jump in the ocean and all. But I think having that empathy is really important. But I think delinquencies is just being on top of delinquencies. Don't let them drag on. And if they have resources, resources, then ultimately, if the situation needs it, you have to take action, you have to take action because it is a business. And I think you have to make them understand that you're trying to pay the bills. You're not just a big, bad landlord. You, you have other investors. That's out of sight. They don't care about that. That's why if you say to them, hey, I need your money because I got bills to pay, that you're going to lose them because that that they could care less. What's in it for me is all about them. But if you come from the standpoint of having some empathy and saying, what can we do together to get through this hard time because we're all having a difficult time, that's opening the door a little bit, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had um, some good results just giving back as much as we can to tenants, working on past due balances, mm -hmm. incentivizing on time payments with gift cards and promotions and giveaways and whatever we can do to mm -hmm. to show them that that we're with them. And and I love the toilet paper idea. That's that's a great uh, that's a great little thing. And and I'm sure your tenants appreciated that. A little little bit of lighthearted. Yes. And and you know what? Honestly, at, for for a few months there, they probably could have really used that because yeah, it was that's we did it. To, exactly. <laughs> we got some H, H, HD supply. They sent them over it. We had, we had extra shipment coming in, but I think Justin, I think the other thing that's where the property management can start to shine or you as an asset manager, you should have a customer journey for your investors, but we're trying to really revise it. We're trying to do multiple touch points with a resident. And I think everyone should really listen to this because this is important. When a resident takes, you know, ownership goes into the unit, when's the next time he probably gets a call from the property management company, probably 60 days before it's time to renew. Yep. Maybe in there, figure out a way after day 30, or day 60 to reach out to your residents and say, hey, we're here. If there's something wrong with the unit, if you have a leak or your air conditioner needs to be fixed, please don't hesitate. Reach out to us. Because a lot of residents, especially in the C-space, and I'm amazed by this. When I had my restaurant, I had three apartments upstairs. They would never call me. I would know when there was a leak, when it was actually leaking through the ceiling. I'm like, dude, you wait that long? I'm, I'm downstairs. Right. They just don't want to bother you. They feel like they're being an annoyance. And it's like, Whatever. Make sure, be proactive, because then when that lease comes due, they may not have ever called you about that leaky faucet, but they're like, you know what? It's just bothering them. They don't know. So trying to be proactive on that end, reaching out to them, doing what you said, maybe a pizza night, maybe having uh, you know picnic areas where you're doing some type of events, giving them information and letting them come to you. I think that's really important. Most of the time, like I said, after they move in, they don't get any kind of cards. They don't get any kind of thank yous. 
nothing. All 60 days before we're here, you want to release. If not, we'll see you later. And that is not a great customer experience. And a lot of us, we're, we're all at fault of that. We're trying to build that out. And I think if everyone looks at their model and starts out young, when you're 30, 40, 50 units, and you're starting out, put that into your business plan. I will guarantee you residents don't leave because their, their rent went up by 20 bucks. They leave because Justin and Gino suck at management. That's why yeah. they leave. There's no yeah. customer service, basically. I love that. And it's a great way to think about it. I love that you use the word resident instead of tenant because uh, it really is all about them. And, and, you know, that's a big mission of ours too. We invest heavily in community areas, playgrounds, you know, the things that those residents love and makes them want to stick around. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they'll, they'll handle a $20 rent bump if, if they love being there and they feel heard and they, they feel like their, their concerns are addressed. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, something very important. You mentioned the word mission statement. I yeah. think that's something else that we really should touch on really quick. I think it's sure. truly important at Jake and Gino and the Rand family of companies. We started out buying properties, Jake and I, we had no mission statement. Jake came from corporate. He hated the word core values. You know, in the corporate world, you see these companies that are really, truly empowering and really amazing. They have core values. Look at Apple. I mean, the people who work at Apple are demonic. I mean, they love that company. Tesla, they have core values and a mission statement. Mm-hmm. They really gather around them. We got some scaling up coaching. I think coaching business, I, I love education. I invest in myself. I mean, I've spent a couple hundred grand in the last couple of years because when you get to an inflection point, you don't know what the next step is. So we're at this point where we're trying to hire employees and we're blaming the employees for being bad employees. And I did that at the restaurant. I didn't have Mm -hmm. any systems. I had no core values. So the bottom line is when you're out there and you're growing, figure out what your mission statement is, right? We create communities that empower people to be the best version of themselves. What communities, the education community, the investor community, the resident community, and we have a community that we do uh, loans for. So those communities and then our core values, it took us a couple of days to flesh them out with coaches, people first, make it happen, growth mindset, you know, unwavering ethics and extreme ownership. Those are our five core values that we hire and fire from. And whether it's vendors, whether it's investors that we have, whether it's employees, it's important that us as leaders, you know, lead by that. So people first, you're going to put your residents first. You're going to put your employees first. That's important. Once you have that framework built out, then you can start hiring from people and firing people and bringing people on and not having that clarity. You don't have that. And then obviously you're getting into the hiring and firing. We could talk about that, but that's a really lengthy process. But if you don't have these core values flushed out for yourself, I didn't have them in the beginning and Jake and I didn't have them in the beginning of our property management company. We kept having high turnover. We kept hiring the wrong people. One of the things that really tweaked Jake a couple of years into it is when an employee said, that's not my job. You're an assistant manager. You can mop the floor. That's not my job. His core value was extreme ownership. You know, make Mm -hmm. it happen. If I'm mopping the floor and if Gino's out there putting books in and shipping books during Christmas time to students, you know what? Our whole company is going to do it. So, on the front end, that's not an employee that's going to be a good fit for us. So that is really important, fleshing that on the front end and getting your company started on the right foot. Well, I love that when you're thinking about scaling a company um, and, and the idea of just having that very clear criteria, the mission statement, the values actually helps you whether any phase of the multifamily process, mm-hmm. it, it could be markets or a deal type or you know how we're going to raise money or the, the size, uh, where all these things fit. You know, if you have your criteria listed and you have mm-hmm. your mission and your values, it's very easy to say, 
yes, this fits in that bucket or no, it doesn't. And we move on. And that actually allows you to grow because you're more focused on what's in that bucket, what fits all your criteria. That's really cool. You said that. I like that. So even when you're, you know, I like the frameworks. I think it's easy for people to have a picture. So when you're buying a deal, really important, have your buy right criteria. What kind of assets are you going to buy? A, B, C, where, what kind of markets are you going to buy? What kind of returns? What's your cash on cash returns look like? What do your cap rates look like? You know, what is your model? You're going to buy and hold forever. And even on the finance portion, have that criteria. What are you kind of debt you're looking for? But on the manager rate as well, if you're used to, you know, managing section eight and you want to get into market-based, it's a different ball game. If you're looking at market and, and vice versa, and if you're looking at a C tenant as opposed to an A tenant, a tenants can be very demanding. They're paying top dollar. They're a different type of, of resident base. And I'm not saying we have both. We have, well, we have A properties, we have Bs, we have Cs. You just have to be able to match and understand what, you know, what asset type goes with what type of management style. It's important to be able to flush that out as well. I love it. I love it. Um, it's getting so much out of this conversation. Uh, before we move to the end, let's talk about the honeybee a little bit. Uh, tell, me, tell me about the book, uh, what inspired it, and, and what do you hope people get out of it? Well, you're, you're incorporating the honeybee principles. I mean, for Jake and I, it was just the epiphany of when you start buying multifamily, you think the only benefit, and this goes to any business, right? But you think the only benefit is, let me buy the property, let me get some cash flow. That was the, that's how ignorant we were in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. We didn't really think about the principal pay down, which is huge, right? We didn't really understand the refine role in the very beginning. I did intuitively, but when you never do it, it's like, oh, doesn't make sense. I mean, the first deal we put down 87 grand, 18 months later, we pulled out 164 grand. You do the math, right? Yeah. And, and it stabilized. And that asset, that 25 crappy little unit property is printing six grand a month in positive cash flow Love it. every single month. So you look at it from that perspective, right? And then all of a sudden you have cost segregation, you have tax benefits, which are, which are massive and which are really huge, and which is what I think is driving it. You have the basic human need. You start buying one deal, then two deals. And then all of a sudden, the epiphany comes where I, I always draw it as like a spoke, a wheel, right? You have a wheel in the middle is all your properties, is your assets, right? Then from there, you start creating additional streams of revenue. And for us, it was the property management company. For you, it's the asset management company. That came a little bit farther for us. The mm-hmm. property management company is generating revenue. But more importantly, it was just a way for Jake to get out of his job and a way for us to control the assets. So it's actually making us more profitable because we're more leaner and we're running these assets more efficiently. But we started the education company. That's the next stream of revenue, right? Whether you're writing a podcast, we wrote a book, we started an educational platform. I'm looking to start a publishing company with other people writing books. So that starts to swell, right? Then from there, we're like, let's start syndicating. So all of a sudden you have a syndication company that's generating asset management fees. It's generating acquisition fees, is generating this, whatever fees. And it's also, as you're doing this, the epiphanies keep coming. It's like, wow, I'm not going out and buying a car wash. I'm not going out and buying a restaurant. I'm buying complimentary streams, mm-hmm. right? And they all fit well together. So if there's somebody who wants to do the education, great, let's get them on the education, but he may want to invest with us also, right? And a student, like we did, may bring us a deal. Let's partner with the student on the deal. And the education makes every other company so much stronger because we're learning as we're growing, right? And we're also networking. We're getting our name out there. So a broker may be listening to this podcast and go, I've got a deal for these guys because I know these guys can close, pick up the phone. So it's just a synergy works really beautifully. And that's what attracted me to, to writing a book and saying, you know, that may not be the beginning place for everyone listening to this, but that surely is the end place take it to my restaurant. I was doing this with the restaurant. I'm trying to look for the book that I wrote back in 2010. Rough times. 
I have a nice little pizza place. It's 70 seats, crushing it in the early 2000s. Recession comes, all of a sudden the economy craps out, internet takes over. I wrote a cookbook. So that's one stream of revenue with the restaurant. We started doing cooking lessons on our days off. Another couple grand every time we had 20 people in a restaurant mm-hmm. doing cooking lessons. We started doing offsite catering. But then we started doing barbecues offsite, right? That's another stream. What about a food truck? We could have gotten a food truck doing that also, right? We started, cars, we started doing YouTube videos. I started doing physical products where I was selling knives, cutlery bags. Do you see what I'm talking about? Like the swell, it just becomes large. And it starts from one small little business. Every business out there, if you're a fix and flipper or you're a realtor, you know what? You're buying and selling homes. Why not buy a couple homes, fix and flip them? Why not buy a couple of small multifamilies, start a property management company and manage them? Why not start doing hard money because you have people with investor money? You know what? Why don't you connect with an insurance broker? Because when you buy and sell a home, they need insurance. Title company, education company. The list goes on and on for everybody out there in their business. Now, I'm not saying to do this from day one. And I'm not saying you got to do this all by yourself because I've had partners. You know, I'm a partner with Jake. He's doing property management day to day and I'm doing the education day to day. But it's pretty amazing that I can speak really well on property management because I am on all those calls. Mm-hmm. I'm going through the strategy. I'm going through the buy right of the deal. I'm going through the whole mechanics. So I understand that we teach it, but I'm intimately involved, but I'm able to do the education full time day to day. And ironically enough, Jake is walking a couple of properties as we speak, doing the property management, the acquisition. So we're able to divide and conquer. That's what's amazing about partnerships. One plus one is not two. One plus one is multiple. But the honeybee, the whole idea with the honeybee was, you know, the idea of a honeybee is that they are like the W-2 worker. All they know to do is to make honey. They don't ask why. They don't ask who it's for. They're just programmed for that. And I felt like I was a honeybee when I was at the restaurant, going into work Tuesday, working all week, hoping there's a little bit of money left over and repeating the process, never sitting down and going, why am I doing this? What's in it for me? What, what, what is... Once again, what is my why? What's my clarity? Who's making the money in this, in this gig? Noah in the book is the honeybee, the honey worker. Tom is the beekeeper. He's the one making the money because he owns mm-hmm. the hive. Now, Noah gets instant gratification like the W-2 worker, like Gino, who works every week and gets paid every single week. Tom is the one who's like putting it off, right? He's putting off that instant gratification. He's building the business. He's building the hive. It's more risk, takes more money, but ultimately he gets rewarded. And in the book, Tom lives in a beautiful property called Tributary Acres, a lot of little streams. All these multiple streams of revenue, they may be really small in the beginning, but if you continue to work at them, all of a sudden what happens? They converge synergistically and they become a raging river. So I think that's the analogy of the book. We wrote it. It's a great, it's a business parable. I I love the richest man in Babylon. Mm -hmm. I'm not a smart dude. I'm not going to lie to you. I am not a rocket scientist. I need things to be written down and broken down to me. And I think this book, when somebody reads it, they're going to have epiphanies. It's all learning lessons. In, in one part of the book, Noah's buying deals. His first deal, start small. Think big, but start small. He starts with an Airbnb in his basement, makes a couple of mistakes. Then he goes out and buys a couple of duplexes. Then he goes in to buy a restaurant. Uh-oh, made a mistake. That's not a complimentary stream. You can buy the revenue. You can buy the building itself, but not the restaurant because you don't know the restaurant business. He makes right. a mistake there. Then he starts scaling up and he goes to Tom and he asks Tom, you know, you know, how do I do this? And Tom is like, don't ask how, ask who. He's like, oh, you know what? I can hire a maintenance tech. I can hire a property management company. I can hire CapEx, where a lot of us are buckled in. He has the mentor driving him through all of his problems and his questions, and he starts to scale. And then ultimately, as he builds this empire like Tom, we created Rand Cares, our, our charitable arm. You know, what are you doing this for? Really, for us, 
It's leaving a legacy and be able to contribute and, and, and to give back. Because at one point, Noah is like, I've got enough money. I've got enough success. What do I need? So it comes full circle mm-hmm. from the self of worrying about yourself to all of a sudden, you know, give to get. All of a sudden, it's seek to serve. He's out there. Noah's continuing to create streams of revenue. He gives away, you know, that's his legacy. And he, and he actually, you know what? He has a purpose to all of his, all of his business endeavors. Well, the parable is fantastic and, and easy to understand and, and just makes so much sense. We all want that raging river, but you can't just start out with it. You've got to build and build and build. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love what you said. Don't ask how, ask who, because that is the that is the, the beekeeper's mindset, right? The person mm-hmm. that is thinking, how can I assemble? Not only how, but who can I assemble to mm-hmm. build this system? So mm-hmm. really, really excellent stuff. And, and we apply that to our business. And obviously, that's, uh, that's how we get to be successful. Yep. So, um, listen, you spoke so much about the resident experience. You, you spoke so much about just the repositioning and, and really, really great, great content here. I appreciate it so much. Um, before we go, I asked you uh, for your true multifamily tip. This is going to be one thing that we'll talk about manage right. So if you're talking to a new investor, someone that wants to get started in apartments and they say, hey, Gino, how do I manage right? What is your advice to them? Let me bring it back even further. Let's get clear on what you want to do. If you want to grow and have thousands and thousands of units and do it by yourself, you may not manage yourself, right? You may go out and seek third-party property management. Mm-hmm. If you are going to grow slower, like Jake and myself, I mean, we've put on four or 500 units every year because every time you add on a deal, you really need to add on payroll. You need to add and grow your business. So I think the first thing to think about managing, right? Let's look at that. What are your goals? Jake and I, we got to the point where we can do a couple of deals a year. We're thrilled. We love growing this, this organization. We love having these employees. For some people, that's not what they want. Be flesh on exactly what you want. And as far as manage right, there are so many tips out there managing. When you're managing a deal, make sure you hire the property management company, vet them. We have a questionnaire that we use, but really vet them. Are they the right fit for your property? If you have a 10-unit property and they're only managing 100 units plus probably not the right fit. I think that's really important. Find impact together with your property management company. Ask for their systems. If they're still using paper, I don't think they're the right fit, right? I mean, they, they really need to have some type of technology going on. I mean, everything's digital right now. So, and look on Google reviews and, and don't be afraid to go out and interview 10, 15, 20 of them. And I'll give you this last tip. What you do when you go to a property management company, ask them this question. What company would you recommend in this market. Four or five of them will give you, you know, maybe the same one or maybe a couple different. Then you ask them, what property management would you not use? Mm. And that's where it gets interesting because then you'll know the one or two really bad ones that you would stay away from. And so you're asking the property management companies that you're interviewing, yes, who, yes. who of your competitors would you use and who that's would right. you not use? Yeah. Think about that. I mean, most people don't want to talk bad about their competitors, but mm-hmm. out of the 10 people you ask, you'll probably get two or three that'll answer and they'll probably say the same company. You can probably think of like in your, in your, neighborhood or where you live, what dry cleaners are you staying away from? What restaurants are you staying away from? Well, that restaurant's terrible. Their food's terrible. Mm-hmm. Same thing with property management. They all get a bad rep. And sometimes it, it don't look at it from the perspective. It's just a property management company. Maybe the owners, you know, on one or two deals, maybe the owner who's cheap, who's not doing the right job by the property management company, but there's a recurring theme. You'll, you'll yep. see the recurring theme of, of bad property management companies out there. Absolutely. And, and in fact, that's so on the nose because we now um, target deals that are managed by a certain company (laughs) because we know they're mismanaged and we know how much opportunity there's going to be just because we know they're managing it. (laughs) And a lot of the Jake and Gino students are doing that. I got a tip from a student the other day. He's like, yep, I just stay in touch with property management companies because 
I know that they're not doing a good job with it. Exactly. Whether it's whether it's not raising rents, whether it's not pushing NOI, whether their budgets are bloated, whether they have bad residents, whether they have big turnover, whatever that may be. I mean, that's that's a buying opportunity for us in this type of the cycle. Absolutely. Well, Gino, thank you so much for your time on this show. I'll give you a chance. If we haven't covered it already, what what it is that you want to promote to our audience and, and where can they go to find out more about you? Just go to jakeandgino.com. I mean, go check out our blogs. We have student blogs that are post every couple of weeks. A student writes a blog. We have, a, uh, I write my own blogs. We have four weekly shows on our podcast. Go to the Jake and Gino channel. And if you want to, just email me, gino at jakeandgino.com and I'll send you a PDF copy of the Honeybee. It's just Excellent. jake at jakeandgino.com and I'll send you a PDF copy. Are they emailing Jake or are they emailing you? Me, Gino me, at Jake and Gino. Gino at Jake and Gino. All yep. right, guys. Uh, take advantage of that. That is an excellent gift. Thank you so much for that, Gino. We appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the show and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Justin. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out our website at truemultifamily.show. And if you have an amazing story to tell, share it on our Facebook community and you might just be the next guest on the show. We're also on all other social networks. Just search True Multifamily. I'm really, really proud to have this show produced by our company, On Air Brands. Check us out at onairbrands.com. We also have an incredible, unique podcasting event that we would love for you to be a part of. Check that out at podmax.co.